Morning everyone, it's Grant here. I hope you guys are doing well today. I just thought I'd share this because I know some of you have got this on your mind, although I know some of you might not realize that this weekend was meant to be our second ever church camp. So if 2020 hadn't been written by Stephen King and wasn't being directed by Quentin Tarantino, that's where we'd be right now. We'd be down the south coast at Skorheim. We're talking bonfires and marshmallows and great teaching and just fun and activities together as a church. So I'm really sad that that's not our reality this weekend, but it is what it is. But I did just think if you want to get into the camp vibe before we carry on this morning, you're welcome to push pause and go and get an old camping chair and make yourself some coffee and an enamel mug or whatever will get you into the camp mindset. But this morning we're carrying on with our In Durban As It Is In Heaven series. And before we get into the teaching, I just wanted to tell you how we want to end this series. We've always had a desire in this series that we would pray and fast and cry out to God to bring gospel renewal in our city. So we're going to give you guys a bit of a prayer guide to help you pray over those two days and beyond. And we're going to spend Tuesday the 4th and Wednesday the 5th of August praying together. In the evening, we're going to meet in our life groups on the Tuesday night to do that. On the Wednesday evening, we're going to be meeting as a whole church over Zoom to pray and cry out to God to bring renewal in our city in our day. And we're talking spiritual renewal, that men and women would meet Jesus in our city. We're talking economic renewal, and that is something that we have such a deep need of in our city and our country and around the world at the moment. We're talking that God would heal the sick in our city, and we need miracles. There are so many people sick at the moment, many people dying from COVID-19 or related things. We need God to heal the sick and move in powerful ways. We're, we're talking about social and cultural renewal. Uh, all of the things that we've been speaking about in the series, the, the brokenness, the evil, the injustice, and the sin that we see shaping our interactions in the city, that God would come even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of huge disruption, and that his kingdom would come and his will would be done in Durban as it is in heaven. That really is the heart behind our time of prayer and fasting. So I want to invite you to join us for that in a week and a half's time, and just that we would continue as a church to be a people crying out to God, to bring renewal in our day. Now, I want to ask you to stop for a second, and you're welcome to close your eyes if you want, but just to do a little visualization with me before we carry on with today's message. And I want to ask you just to picture in your mind what your Durban looks like. Now, when you think of your Durban, well, what are the sights and sounds that come into your mind? What, what are the places that you like to go, the, the places you hang out, where you do your hobbies, where do you live, where do you work, where do you drive around? What are the familiar sights that you see? What does your Durban look like? And I'm saying your Durban very intentionally here because we know that our Durban is not the Durban. I mean, our church is made up of people who live all around the city, come from very different backgrounds, work in very different spaces, and live very different realities. You know, some people live right in the CBD of the city. Some people live in suburbs on the outskirts of the city. Some people live in townships around Durban. We have different places that we live. We come from different backgrounds. Some of us grew up in homes where we spoke Zulu or English or Afrikaans or French or Shona as a first language. Some of us have very different jobs and are part of different socioeconomic and uh, cultural classes in our society. On top of that, some of us feel free to practice our faith. Whereas for some of us, actually saying that we follow Jesus and that we are part of a church like Harbor City could seem like a rejection to our family, to our friends, to co-workers. You could even, even be mocked by some people thinking, why do you follow that man? Why do you believe that outdated, old-fashioned religion? 
We experience all sorts of different things uh, because of who we are living in this city. And for some of us, we've experienced prejudice in Durban because of something about us. That could be the color of your skin or your sex. That could be where you come from or what you have or don't have, what you do or don't do, where you do or don't work. All of those things can cause us to be prejudiced against in this city. Now, I've lived in Durban my entire life. I'm 34 years old now, and I've lived in a bunch of different places. And I think I've experienced the city in a big way. But I had an experience a couple of years ago which really opened my eyes just to the layers and the nuance and the beauty and the diversity of Durban. We were part of a city serve uh, cleanup day right in the CBD of Durban. There were people from churches all around the city and Harbour City was there. We were serving because we love the people of Durban. And my group was on Anton Lembedi Street, I think about 50 of us up and down the street just doing a big cleanup. And the, the block that I was on was known as Little Ethiopia. And I didn't realize this at first, but over time, just chatting to some of the people who lived and worked in that space and some of the people in our team, we realized that everyone was Ethiopian. That, that's where they came from, the, the language they spoke, the way they looked. And we realized that this was a, a neighborhood called Little Ethiopia. And as we spoke to the people around us, they told us, yeah, well, down the road, that's Little Nigeria just over there. And that area is Little so-and-so, whatever it was. And we just realized that in the center of our city and all around Durban are these different pockets and cultures and groups of people living and adding diversity and color and uniqueness to the space that we're in. Just there where we were cleaning up the streets were people who had moved to our city from Ethiopia to start businesses, to start families, to get married, to start a new life in the city of Durban. And for me, that was a big deal. You know, I've probably driven up and down Anton Lemberti Street hundreds or thousands of times throughout my life, you know. But that was the first time I was engaging with people there on the street, hearing their stories, learning a little bit more about them. And it revealed something of the beauty and diversity of my neighbors in the city of Durban in that day. And our city is this cosmopolitan mix of people that come from all over the country, the continent and the world to live in Durban and become one of the three and a half or so million people that call Etiquini home. And as you think about your Durban, as you think about the city that we live in, you know, this is our space. And those people that we drive past and the people that we engage with, they are our neighbors in this city. So this morning, what I want to talk about is what would Jesus say to us as people living in Durban, this unique African urban cosmopolitan city that we call home? What would he say to us about living in the city and the way that we treat our neighbors around us? So if you do have a Bible with you, can I ask you to turn to Luke chapter 10 this morning? We're going to start up in verse 25 and we're going to read the story or the parable of the Good Samaritan together. Luke 10 verse 25. And behold, a lawyer, but when you read that word, think more seminary professor or Bible scholar. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the teacher, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. You think he's saved. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, another Jewish religious leader, when he came to the place and saw him, again, we think he's saved, but passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, Jesus' parables or these short stories that he tells are very simple illustrations that generally have this one big idea that Jesus is trying to communicate. And as you read this uh, parable today, I'm pretty sure you've got the big idea. You've got what the implication for your life is this morning. But today I want to take us a little bit deeper in this parable. This is a bit of an inception sermon. We're going to go layer upon layer into this parable and see all of the truth that Jesus is communicating to us. So let's dive into layer one or level one. This parable is about showing compassion and mercy to our neighbors in this city. Jesus ends his parable saying to us, you go and do likewise. So very simply, to any of us who want to follow Jesus or be his disciple, we are called to be like the Good Samaritan. We are called in our lives to live lives of mercy and compassion and to look out for those around us that we can love and show grace, just like the Good Samaritan did, but in our city in Durban today. Very simply, mercy can be defined as love in action. And this is a a quote that I love. Compassion has been defined in this way, as an interesting word picture is embedded in the Hebrew word racham. In the Old Testament, the word racham is normally translated to love or to have compassion. Interestingly, it is the derivative of the word rachem, normally translated womb. I believe it is no strange coincidence that the word compassion is rooted in a mother's womb. Just like the love a mother feels for a baby is from a deep place within her, so compassion is meant to come from deep within the hearts of servants of Jesus. Now you and I live in a city that has deep needs. Durban has needs. Durban needs our mercy and compassion. And as we see this story, I think we've got to be challenged personally and as a church to go and do likewise. We've been speaking about this over the last couple of weeks. But personally, each one of us needs to prayerfully go before God and say, Lord, I know I can't do everything, but I can do something. What is it that you would have me do? And then to go out to do justice, to remember the poor, and to live lives of mercy and compassion in Durban or wherever it is that we might be living. And in Matthew 25 verse 35, Jesus speaks to us and he gives us the reason why we should do this. He speaks about a day in a future where I won't need to preach sermons like this because there won't be this need. It's a day in the future where he is sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning over all things. His kingdom has come. His will has been done. In Durban, as it is in heaven, there's this reality that his rule and reign is experienced by everyone everywhere. There's no more suffering or sin or hardship or tears or death or illness or injustice or evil in the world. Things are the way that they're supposed to be. And Jesus speaks to us. His people, his disciples, his servants, who have lived lives of mercy and compassion and justice. And he says to us in verse 35, 
For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And Jesus the King will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What Jesus wants us to see here is that as we serve others, as we live lives of mercy and compassion and justice, remembering the poor and reaching out to those in need, we are doing the work of the kingdom of God. And when we serve in this way, everything we do is an act of worship that glorifies and honors Jesus. Harvest City, we've said this in a number of different ways over the years, but our lives are probably going to be the loudest sermon that we ever preach. We can share about Jesus with people, but when they see our lives living out his ways, it is a beautiful message to them about what the kingdom of God is like and what Jesus, our Savior, is like. And here we see very simply in level one of this par- uh, parable that we are called to be like the good Samaritan and to live lives of mercy and compassion. But let's go a little bit deeper. What is the second level here? Really, as we go deeper into this parable, we see that the kingdom of God is coming in our world and it's changing hearts and lives to love those that we should naturally hate. I'm not sure how many of you remember a story that was in the news in 2015 about a 21-year-old white male named Dylan Roof. He lived in uh, Charleston in South Carolina and he went into this historic Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church one evening and he joined them for a prayer meeting. He even sat down next to the pastor, Reverend Pinckney, who at the time was a state senator. And Ruth joined in. They, they were really hospitable and excited to have him with them. They were talking to him. They prayed together with him. And somewhere near the end of that prayer meeting, Ruth pull, pulled out an automatic weapon and he opened fire point blank on those church members and he killed nine of them. Six women, three men, three of them were senior citizens. Obviously, that was a, a terrible tragedy. But what happened next showed something of the beauty of the kingdom of God that we were a part of. In light of that terrible violence and injustice, the the media of the world was focused in on the story and how it would unfold. And what happened in that courtroom was that members, family members and church members came forward and spoke to Ruth. One by one they spoke to him, but not in anger, but showing him forgiveness and grace. Nadine Collier the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, who died in that shooting, said to Ruth, You took something very precious away from me. I will never be able to talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. And may God have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But I forgive you. A sister of one of the other victims said, I acknowledge that I am very angry. And that I am a work in progress. I think the translation of that is, I want to throttle you. But one thing that the pain, the victim, always enjoined in our family, is she taught me that we are the family that love built. We have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. I pray God have mercy on your soul. I think the beauty of the story is the tension we see there. Just the reality and the honesty of the raw pain and suffering and hardship 
these people are going through at the loss of their loved ones. They are grieving. You see that in their words and in their testimonies. But at the same time, despite their grieving, the way they respond transcends the way people normally would. They're not responding in anger and hurt and pain, but they're responding with great mercy, compassion and love towards Ruth. I think this story is uh, one of the many stories of the people of God responding in a way that transcends normal response. This is a supernatural expression of God's grace. And we're seeing the beauty of the kingdom of God in the way these people respond to such evil and wickedness. Jesus again says in Matthew 5, verse 43 to 47, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? He's saying, don't even those who practice injustice, who live corrupt lives, don't even they act that way? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Don't even those who don't know God act in that way. We are called to a different way, the way of Jesus, the way of his kingdom. What Jesus is saying to us there is that we don't respond and act and live in the way the world around us works. We respond and act and live in the way heaven works. We treat uh, other people, we treat situations in the way God has treated us in Christ filled with grace and love and mercy towards us. And we want to see the kingdom of God come in our lives and in our hearts and in our interactions in the way that we see in that story of those church members and how they responded to someone who was so filled with hatred and anger and prejudice and violence against them. And really in the story of the Good Samaritan, we see exactly the same thing. You see, the Samaritan isn't just the story of a good person doing a good deed. The Samaritan is actually really going out there. He's risking his life in the story. You might not know this, but the Jericho Road was a notoriously dangerous part of town. This stretch of road was known to have criminals looking out for people that they could rob and steal from. And here, it's just happened. This man knows that the person that he's going to help has just been beaten up. They've just been mugged and robbed. That's why they're lying there beaten up, uh, bloody and dying. And actually, those criminals could just be around the corner. They could be watching him even now. He doesn't know if he's going to be safe. So in a sense, the Levite and the priest did the common sense thing. They moved to the other side of the road to a safer place to get away from trouble to get home. This Jericho Road strip was probably like the most dangerous part of Durban. At night, down some dark alley, and you're on your own. And here we see the Samaritan respond in a different way to the way most of us would respond. So not only does the Samaritan go against the common sense way of thinking, but he also inconveniences himself. You know, he knows that if he stops and helps this man, it's going to mess up his schedule. His week is going to be inconvenienced by the fact that he stops to help this man. And more than that, it's going to cost him. It's going to cost him money. You know, he could lose clients or customers because of this. He could be late for meetings. On top of that, when he bends down and cleans up this man's wounds and lifts him up and puts him on his horse, You know what? He's getting blood on his clothes. You know, that's going to cost him. This is a huge inconvenience. On top of that, like, is this man going to infect him? Is he going to make him sick as he tries to take care of him and gets his blood on him? And on top of that, that, that's not even his problem. 
You know, if you think about it, one of the voices in his head must have been like, why should I stop for this man? Why should I help him? I don't owe him anything. It would be so easy for him or any one of us just to justify ignoring him and carrying on with our day. But the Good Samaritan does go to this man and he does bend down and help him. He does clean up his wounds and bandage him and pour oil on him. He does lift him up and put him on his donkey and then he walks with him however far it is to the next town to a place where he can get help. This is also really physically tiring and exhausting work for him. And he takes out his own money and he pays for this man to be taken care of. And he says, listen, if there's anything else that I owe when I come back later, just let me know and I will pay it. Commentators reckon that the money he took out was two months uh, salary. This was a lot of his own money that he was giving for a man that he didn't even know. This is a really costly and inconvenient detour, you guys. And what makes his response even more radical than all of that, I don't know how many of us would do that, is that the man who the Samaritan helped was his sworn enemy. You see, the Jews and Samaritans hated one another. And as the Samaritan saw this man, he would have realized, this is a Jew. This is my natural enemy. Why would I help this man. Now the Samaritan knew the Jewish culture and, and knew how they felt about Samaritans and he knew how strongly the Samaritans felt about the Jews. But history tells us that the worst insult a Jewish person could pay to someone else is to call them a Samaritan. Now listen, that's not going to fly in our culture. We use other colorful language to describe people which we shouldn't use. We shouldn't say those kinds of things. But for the Jew, the most insulting and degrading thing you could call someone else is to call them a Samaritan. On top of that, there's uh, recordings of normal, everyday Jewish people getting up early in the morning, making a cup of tea and praying, Lord, give me a good day. Give me this day my daily bread. Keep me safe. And Lord, I pray there will be no Samaritans in the resurrection on the last day. That's like you and I getting up tomorrow morning, making our tea and coffee, rubbing the sleep out of our eyes, sitting down with our Bible, getting into the worship zone with Jesus praying, asking him to bless our day, and then thinking of another group of people, a race group, an ethnic group, a different type of people, a subculture of people in our city, and saying, Lord, I hate being with them in this life and in this city. I want to pray that I wouldn't be with them in eternity. It's like you're, you're sentencing people to hell and eternal punishment because you don't like them. That is a really hate-filled, prejudiced, twisted prayer to pray. And the Samaritan, when he sees the Jew on the side of the road, he knows all of this. This is in his mind. He, he's been shaped by this thinking his entire life. So for the Samaritan to serve and sacrifice and inconvenience him for the Jewish man was going against his culture. It was going against the way he had been raised in his family. And it was going against the way his society thought and acted. This kind of treatment was not what the Jewish man deserved. And I'm sure in his mind at the same time, he's thinking, well, he wouldn't do this for me. Why would he help me? So why would I help him? For him to get down and help this Jewish man goes against his entire Samaritan cultural formation. Everything that has shaped him for years says don't help this man. But still he does. And that's why Jesus uses this illustration because he wants to show us that the Samaritan's response is an act of undeserved grace and that this is what the kingdom of God is like. What we see in this parable is this example of what it looks like when the kingdom of God clashes with the prejudice and discrimination and hatred that we find in our city. What happens in that kind of situation? 
Now, maybe just as a last aside, just describing what's going on here. Jesus' listeners would have been shocked by this parable. You know, they would have been shocked that Jesus chose to use a Samaritan as a hero in his story rather than choosing a Jew. You see, for a Jew to serve and rescue a Samaritan, that would have been radical, and maybe they could have understood that. But for a Jewish rabbi like Jesus to tell this story and to make this point and to make the hero a Samaritan and to make the villains in the story, the bad guys, two Jewish religious leaders, would have been so shocking. It would have been so unbearably culturally abrasive. Like, I don't know if you've been in a situation where it is just so uncomfortable and awkward. Like, what the person is saying around you is just making you more and more tense because everyone is being made uncomfortable by the way they're saying and how thoughtlessly they're speaking. That's what's going on. You can imagine people in the crowd looking at their friend and saying, can you believe he's saying this? The friend turning back and saying, I know, what is he thinking? But that's what Jesus is doing. While the people are squirming in their seats, He's telling this parable to subvert their prejudice and their mindsets and the way they've been shaped by the years to show them that the kingdom of grace that he has come to bring into this world looks different from the kingdom that they are a part of. Now, Harbor City, we live in a city which has got a long history of prejudice in many ways, shapes and forms. The city that we live in, as we looked at a little bit last week, has literally been defined and divided geographically by prejudice. On top of that, socioeconomically, our city has been defined and divided by prejudice. And our culture and society over the years has been defined and divided by prejudice. All around us, even today, we've got these reminders of the past and how prejudice has shaped our city. And even today in the present, we've got these reminders of the prejudice that still exists in our own hearts and lives and all around us in the city that we live in. So when we read this parable, we can't just think about Jew and Samaritan. We've got to think about ourselves and personalize this and get introspective for a moment. So maybe I can ask you a couple of questions here. How does Jesus' parable challenge your mindset and your action today when it comes to prejudice and to loving our neighbors in Durban? Maybe I can ask you a little bit more. Is there anyone, as I share this today, that you realize you need to forgive? Anyone that maybe they don't deserve it, maybe what they've done is so hurtful towards you, but that you feel, I need to forgive them and show them the grace that Jesus has shown me. I don't know if there's any prejudice or hatred or discrimination in your heart towards someone or towards a group of people. Maybe that you've even been trained as you've grown up to hate and to reject. But you realize today as you hear this parable that you need to replace that with mercy and compassion towards them. Is there someone in your life, maybe it's someone you work with, someone in your family, someone in your home, someone that lives nearby to you, that you are not treating right, that you are showing prejudice, that you realize there's something in your heart that you need to change to treat them the way Jesus would treat them? And do you need to repent today and ask God to forgive you of prejudice in your own heart? That's the second level of the story. Let's go even deeper to the third level. And this this idea is key to this whole passage. Luke 10 verse 29, it says, But he, the, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, I think even for some of us, as I ask those introspective questions and just ask us to think about our own hearts for a second, we might want to ask this question. Just say, Jesus, do you really mean that my neighbor is everyone who lives in Durban? 
Are, are you really saying that everyone that exists is my neighbor or is there like a loophole in this or some fine print that I can get around some people because there are some people it's really hard for me to love. There's some people it's really hard for me to show mercy and compassion to in this way. Is there not a way that I can just kind of bypass some of this to continue living the way that I'm living? Well, Jesus, do you really mean it? Do you really mean that everyone is my neighbor? I think what's important to grasp is that the man asking Jesus this question is called a lawyer, but he's, he's really more a religious lawyer. He's like a, a seminary professor or someone who is a Bible expert. He's an expert in the scriptures and in interpreting the Bible. And he's the one coming to Jesus to ask him these questions. And he wants Jesus' interpretation here to know that he's right with God, that he's righteous and that he's good, that he will have eternal life one day. Now, all of the rabbis in that day, all of the men like him, would have answered this question in the same way. That's why Jesus says to him, how do you interpret the law? You know, he throws it back into his thing. And the man says, well, really the law says I must love God and love my neighbor. If I do those two things, then I'd be right in God's eyes. And Jesus says, you're 100% right. That, that's perfect. All you need to do is perfectly love God in every way, every day for the rest of your life. And to love your neighbor, who is everyone, even the people you dislike or are prejudiced against, even those that you've been shaped by the culture around you to not like, all you need to do for the rest of your life is to perfectly love everyone you come into contact with, no matter how they treat you until the day that you die. And then you'll be right with God. I hope you get kind of the irony of what Jesus is doing here. The problem is none of us can even show perfect love to everyone in our lives every single day. Now, I'm sure you've seen this over the last while. You haven't even been able to perfectly love the people that you love the most. You know, maybe your spouse or your kids or the people you live with or your family or co-workers, the people you're closest to, we fail at loving perfectly. And that's what Jesus is trying to show us. You know, this isn't about the pressures and stresses of lockdown, making stuff come out of us and, and causing offense within our relationships. No, what Jesus is saying to him here is that this is beyond you. Jesus is trying to crush him with the reality that, yes, he can have eternal life if he does this in his own strength, as long as he just perfectly loves God and perfectly loves everyone every day for the rest of his life. What he's trying to show this man is it's impossible. What he's trying to do in his own strength is impossible. He can't justify himself. He can't save himself. He can't make himself right with God. And what Jesus is doing with his answer is he's trying to point him to an even greater truth. And the truth is this, that we are not the good Samaritan in the story. Jesus is. Sorry if this is a spoiler. I'm sure some of you have been thinking, who would I be if this happened in my life? Would I be like the Levites or the priests who kind of go to the other side of the road and don't help? Or would I be the good Samaritan? But Jesus is saying to us here, he is the good Samaritan. He is the one who comes to the rescue. And you and I are that man on the side of the road, beaten, bloodied, stripped naked, robbed, unable to help ourselves, desperately in need of a good neighbor to come up to us, to rescue us and to show us grace. We need someone to come and get down off of their horse and to come down to our level, to bandage our wounds and to clean our wounds, to treat us and to put us onto their horse, to rescue us and to take us to a place where we can be saved to clean out our wounds and heal us and take off our old clothes which have been marred by sin and to put on their robe of righteousness, to pay the price that we could not pay, that we could be saved and rescued 
and to have a new life. That's what's going on in the story. Jesus is the Good Samaritan, not us. And what we see in the story is that we are not good enough. We are not strong enough. We don't have what it takes to rescue ourselves, let alone to rescue others. You know, if we think by being good Samaritans in the city, we're going to do enough to please God and to earn eternal life, we're wrong. Our our love is so imperfect. But Jesus' love towards us is perfect in every way. You see, we need to accept who we are in this story. We need to accept that we are sinful, we are imperfect, and we are in need. And we need to humble ourselves to allow God to come and rescue us. And when we do, when we are saved by Him, when we experience His mercy and compassion to us, it does something inside of our hearts. You know, no longer do we try and help people out of a sense of guilt or trying to do the right thing. But all of a sudden, as we've experienced His mercy and compassion, we begin to show mercy and compassion to others. Out of the mercy and compassion, the grace and love we've received, we begin to give. And we begin to give even to those that we've been trained or should naturally hate in our society. We begin to give even to those who are undeserving or maybe who have hurt us in the past. And we begin to give even to those who might never treat us in the same way. And we do that because of how God in Christ has treated us. And Harbour City, this morning as we end the service, I really want to encourage you just to respond with a moment of reflection and prayer. Just as the response song comes on now, would you come before God and just ask the Holy Spirit how He wants you to respond this morning? To some of us, we need to respond to Jesus. You know, we need to repent of our pride. We need to repent of the prejudice we have against other people. And we need to ask Him to forgive us. Or for some of us, we realize today we're not followers of Jesus. We're still that person on the side of the road who needs to be rescued and saved. And today, would you come to him and say, Jesus, would you save me? Would you forgive me? Would you wash me clean? Would you bring me into a relationship with you? The second group of people uh, that we need to respond to today are the people around us in our city. Now, how do we respond to the people in our lives? Is there any repenting we need to do? Do we need to apologize to anyone or begin to treat someone differently and finally how do we need to respond to the people in Durban our neighbors in the city is there anyone you're being prejudiced against any group of people that you've got resentment or a lack of love towards how do you respond today father I pray for us as a church that this morning you would reveal prejudice and unlove inside of us and that we would encounter your mercy and compassion And I pray, Lord, as we encounter you and encounter what you have done for us based on the cross, that we would be filled with mercy, compassion, grace, and love to show to the people around us. And that you, Holy Spirit, would lead us and guide us in what you want us to do. And that you would empower us to be like the Good Samaritan in our city as we go about our business, as we live our lives, that we would be good neighbors to the people around us in Durban. And that we would see your kingdom come in Durban as it is in heaven. Amen.